Welcome everyone to this third episode of the podcast series Environmental Justice Litigation. This podcast is a student project at the University of Oslo. My name is Konrad Sandvik and I'm here with Eva Svalina. So tell me, uh, Eva, who are we talking to today? So today we are talking to Eva Ralvik. Ivar uh, is a law professor at the Department of Energy and Resources Law at the University of Oslo. Uh, we are hoping to get the explanation of Norwegian licensing system, which can seem a little bit complicated at first, and uh, also, of course, some uh, legal comments on this case. Uh, if you don't have anything to add, I think we can go further to the interview. So with us today, we have Ivar Alvik, professor at the Scandinavian Institute of Maritime Law, Department of Energy and Resources Law at the University of Oslo. So thank you so much for being with us today, Ivar. Thank you for uh, having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, so first of all, I was wondering if you could quickly explain from your perspective what, what the Norwegian climate lawsuit was and how it unfolded in the courts. Yeah, um, well, um, from uh, my perspective, this um, was uh, a court case um, which was uh, launched by uh, some environmental interest organizations against the Norwegian government, um, where uh, the basic claim was that um, a round of concessions uh, on the Norwegian continental shelf, um, more specifically the 23rd round of concessions, uh, which was um, uh, which was uh, handed out by the Norwegian government was um, uh, illegal and uh, invalid as a result uh, of uh, the concessions being in violation essentially of uh, section 112 of the Norwegian constitution. Um, uh, as I perceive the case. Um, it also revolved around basically two uh, main issues. The first issue was whether um, uh, whether uh, this round of concessions uh, was uh, substantively in violation of um, uh, of a material standard. Uh, for protection of the environment uh, enshrined in uh, section 112 uh, and the other main issue as um, as i understand it was uh, that um, uh, the round or the process leading up to uh, giving out the concessions was in breach of a procedural requirement um, essentially enshrined in section 112 but uh, but in practice uh, this was a little bit more complicated because you also had the procedural requirements in uh, the regulatory framework uh, both uh, the norwegian regulatory framework uh, and also uh, also uh, an important eu directive the so-called planning directive which was important so can we uh, start a little bit up from the 
technical questions. So can you explain Norwegian licensing system in short? Yes, I can do that. Um, uh, the Norwegian licensing system is um, um, it based on uh, different stages. Um, it's a decision-making process uh, with uh, different uh, concrete stages. Um, uh, the first uh, stage in the licensing process is that the area where uh, these licenses are, um, uh, are situated or located has to be opened for petroleum activity. Um, this is uh, this is uh, it's um, uh, it's not expressly said in the regulatory framework that this is a decision taken by uh, the parliament, but in practice it is. So it is the parliament which, uh, based on impact assessments, etc., which um, which the executive government and the Ministry of Petroleum and Energy. Uh, prepares um, uh, as a white paper uh, before the parliament. Uh, the parliament then decides to open up an area for uh, petroleum activity. Um, so, uh, so essentially, uh, for petroleum licenses uh, to be able to be given out to uh, to participants. Uh, it, the area has to be opened. There has to be this decision uh, uh, relating to each new area. Um, uh, this is uh, this is quite uh, uh, quite a massive uh, procedure. Um, <coughs> there there haven't actually been that many uh, openings of uh, of areas on the Norwegian continental shelf. Um, uh, but um, uh, but the last decision to open was in 2013, and this um, this uh, related to uh, uh, to the, the the southeastern part of the Barents Sea, um, um, where um, many of these licenses in the 23rd license round was. Um, uh, was handed out, um, but uh, the other area where uh, there also were where some licenses that was that was uh, opened in 1989, as far as I recall, uh, that was the, the southern part of the Barents Sea. So this is the first stage, the opening of areas after um, after an area has been opened. That means that it also it is uh, subject to potential potential giving out of licenses. So this then is the next uh, important decision. That is um, that is the decision to give individual licenses to interested uh, companies. Uh, and this is. Um, uh, this is um, uh, this this decision uh, is a decision which is taken by uh, um, the executive, uh, the king in council, which is 
which is uh, the expression in Norwegian Petroleum Act. And the king in council means that it, it is subject to um, a formal process where it is, um, where, where it is the, the, the cabinet which decides, but uh, it has to be countersigned by the king in, uh, in a formal meeting. So this, this part of the process doesn't require assessment, right? No, the, um, that's correct. Um, the licensing as such, uh, the round of licensing doesn't require an impact assessment as such because, uh, because uh, the impact assessment relating to the environment, etc., will, uh, will have been made in the opening of the area. Um, but uh, that, that doesn't mean that there isn't elements of an impact assessment also in relation to giving out individual licenses. But, uh, but the most substantial impact assessment is in the opening of areas. Um, what is also important uh, to know is that this handing out of individual licenses doesn't as such give a right to produce any patrol. It is uh, mainly a right to explore. It's more both a right and a duty, a duty to explore for petroleum in a certain area. Uh, and then it is also, uh, it's, it also provides an exclusive right to produce. But the, the, the main part here is that the right is exclusive meaning that no one else can be given a right to produce. It doesn't mean that you having the exclusive right actually have a definitive right to produce because this then is subject to a new, um, new decision, which is uh, the so-called approval of the plan for development and operation. Uh, and this approval of the development plan that is also subject to uh, very detailed requirements relating to uh, impact assessments. There, there, have to be, there has to be an impact assessment relating uh, to environmental consequences, economic consequences. Uh, and this is, of course, it is only at this stage that um, it is possible to make an individual impact assessment relating to uh, to the licensing question, because uh, uh, in relation to the opening, uh, one obviously doesn't know uh, whether there is any resources to be developed. So, so uh, an organization like Greenpeace, uh, for instance, are um, uh, stating that uh, the Barents Sea area is uh, very delicate and the area around the ice edge is also an important ecosystem that um, oil production could damage uh, significantly. So presumably, uh, where in the process would you evaluate if this area is uh, too delicate for oil production? Uh, you would you would um, you would uh, evaluate it in both stages, both in the opening of the area as such. Um, where this is precisely what would have to be subject to, to be the subject of the impact assessment. Um, so, for instance, um, 
uh, in relation to what um, is at the moment uh, and has been for some time a contested area, where, which is outside the Lofoten, uh, Lofoten Islands. Uh, there, um, uh, th that area has not been opened precisely because of such concerns. Um, but um, also in relation to the development plan, there has to be an assessment of these uh, these consequences, because it is uh, only in relation to the development plan that you are able to. Uh, to make an individual assessment of sort of what types of installations you will require to uh, to produce, um, where these installations will be, um, what um, what um, uh, what are sort of the individual qualities of the reservoir, what types of risk does this um, uh, entail, etc. These are things that you don't know anything about uh, when the area is open. There you just have more of a sort of general awareness relating to, uh, to the environmental implications. Uh, but uh, but you, don't, uh, you don't have sufficient knowledge uh, to sort of make the individual assessment. And that is also then why you have to make this sort of assessment in both stages of, uh, of the and process. When, and when you make that individual assessment, you would uh, weigh stuff like uh, how delicate the area is, how much oil there is uh, potential, how much gain you could have from extracting in the area, um, the risk of spills and, uh, and stuff exactly. like that. Yeah. Exactly. But you, that would be in the opening. But you also you may you have to make this assessment once more when in relation to the development plan. So sort of having decided that this is a potential area for production doesn't mean that you have sort of decided that there will be production. You have sort of just made the decision that this, this area is potentially sort of, uh, have, it's an area having the potential for petroleum production. But you sort of you can't make sort of a definitive assessment of that in the opening uh, opening process. But what we have seen from the case that it was highly disputed whether the combustion effects abroad should be included in the impact assessment. Can you comment a little bit that part? Yeah, that was um, that was uh, one of the key issues in the climate lawsuit um, was whether the combustion uh, that is uh, this, the emissions from exported petroleum and the combustion of that petroleum abroad should also be taken into account in the impact assessment. Um, and uh, that is that is um, that that is uh, I think unclear from the wording of the relevant provisions. Um, that has to do with the procedural requirements. Um, what what is said in the procedural uh, requirements relating to opening is that climate consequences have to be taken into account. But what is meant by climate consequences 
that is not clear. Uh, one possible interpretation is that climate consequences means consequences of the burning of petroleum in the production process. And I think that is probably how it has been interpreted before and by the government, uh, whereas the environmental organizations argue that this also should cover burning of exported petroleum. Yeah, so, so from uh, from what I understand, when you make the impact assessment, you account for the for the income you will have from set exporting the oil, and you account for the possible increase in CO two emissions from combustion in Norway, but you don't account for um, the oil you export to to other countries to be burnt there. We we sort of don't don't account for the increased emissions that uh, that will arise from that, uh, and the environmental organizations think that uh, since the paragraph says the um, the government should have a role in trying to establish a, a better climate, we should also care about uh, what we are dealing like selling to other countries and how that would impact the environment. But did the court have any decision on this area? Yes, um, the court uh, was divided on that exact question. Uh, the majority of the court uh, argued that uh, there wouldn't be much point in making an impact assessment relating to um, uh, possible emissions in the opening uh, stage of the process. Uh, because uh, they argue that at this point you don't know whether there is any petroleum in uh, in the area, you don't know how much petroleum there is, and uh, you don't know whether that petroleum will uh, uh, will uh, be worthwhile to produce. Um, so uh, the majority, um, uh, quite a large majority of the court, uh, held that this was an evaluation which, if it was required uh, uh, in at all in the process, uh, which they sort of didn't really make an opinion on, I think, but if it was required, uh, it, it would be more um, suitable or um, uh, it would be better to make that assessment in relation to the approval of the development plan. Um, whereas the minority, um, uh, essentially on the basis of an interpretation of this uh, EU directive that I mentioned, they argue that this also was something that should have been taken into account uh, as a procedural requirement under the um, uh, opening stage of the process. What, what is a little bit interesting there is um, that they argued, and also as far as I understand it, uh, also the claim of the environmental organization uh, organizations was that this, uh, this concern or this requirement only attached to the area that was opened in 2013. Uh, which, as far as I recall, uh, at the time of the judgment only covered one of the licenses 
in the license round. The other licenses uh, subject to that opening statement had been re-delivered to the government at that point. So uh, the remaining uh, licenses uh, which was subject to the judgment, they had been opened in 1989. Uh, and at that point, uh, it seems that um, also the environmental organizations uh, agreed that there was uh, you, you couldn't you couldn't have expected that the climate consequences should have been taken into account that long back. But uh, combustion of exported oil and gas was also commented regarding the alleged violation of Article 112. And we have seen that all the three courts in the proceedings came to somehow different conclusions. We have seen that Oslo District Court said that combustion abroad is not covered. Then the Court of Appeals said it was covered. And then the Supreme Court said that it was covered, but only if the effects can be seen in the Norwegian territory. Did I? Did, was that how it was? Yeah, um, I uh, I agree with you that um, that the judgment of the city court basically was that uh, section 112 only covered emissions in Norway. Uh, then my perception of it is that the appellate court and the Supreme Court essentially agree that you can't make that sort of restrictive interpretation of section 112. So in principle, it covers uh, also burning of, uh, of petroleum abroad, but subject to the requirement that this burning of petroleum abroad must have potential consequences in Norway. Then, as far as I uh, read the judgment, I, th I think that the appellate court also made that uh, also interpreted the provision in that sense. So I, I think that the appellate court and, and the Supreme Court actually was in agreement on that point. But it's, it's not an issue which is very heavily argued by the Supreme Court, one could say, or one would have to say. It's, it's not something they sort of go very much into uh, they just sort of state that this is how it has to be interpreted. So in you have uh, written an article about the first Norwegian uh, climate uh, litigation. Uh, and in that you state, uh, uh, among other things, that uh, uh, let's uh, try to sum it up, that you think that would be um, a hard and uh, I think you used the word uh, pointless exercise to try and uh, uh, try and establish the uh, environmental impacts of um, or the global impacts of exporting oil that's going to be combusted anywhere else. Uh, can you explain what you what you mean by that? Well, I, I'm, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't agree that that's actually what I say. At least that's not what I mean uh, when I write the article. Uh, what I mean to say is, um, is that um, 
balancing uh, the global climate implications of uh, this sort of quite limited part of Norwegian petroleum production uh, against the benefits for Norway of uh, increasing our production is um, uh, close to a pointless exercise because you are then you are comparing unequal uh, unequal things basically uh, because the benefits to Norway as a producer country will be very tangible uh, we will have um, uh, we will gain uh, gain a lot there will be a lot of money involved from for uh, uh, the Norwegian state um, whereas um, sort of the part that the, the the production from this round of licenses um, the the global climate implications of increasing Norwegian petroleum production with the possible amounts that you might find in uh, in this this license area um, will be quite limited because they will sort of go into sort of the, the whole of the cumulative effect of all the global uh, emissions around the world. So that means that that balancing is very difficult to make. What would be a more meaningful discussion, obviously, what well, would be, would be um, uh, whether Norway should sort of take a lead among producer countries in trying to limit global emissions with a binding agreement for all or many producer countries. That is sort of uh, that is something one could envisage. Uh, one could envisage, but um, uh, when in, in that exact balancing, you would have sort of the very tangible effects of increasing Norwegian production on the one hand for Norwegian uh, the Norwegian economy, and on the other hand, you would have the either very marginal or perhaps no effects at all of uh, increased Norwegian uh, production because that the question uh, of what impact increased Norwegian production will have on uh, Norwegian on, on the global uh, consumption is, is extremely complicated and it's one of the problems uh, like inherent in climate change uh, of course that uh, um, it's easy to have um, uh, have a, almost like a free rider problem where um, you would would want emissions to be cut elsewhere of course because uh, you want to uh, get the tangible um, benefits as you say in your own country so um, it's just as an economist when i think about uh, like um, uh, societal efficiency for instance and looking at it at a global scale uh, i think it's easy uh, when making these assessments if we only account for the benefits to the country uh, extracting and exporting the oil and we don't uh, consider the impacts uh, to the global climate that the total ne negative effect of the um, 
the increased extraction will actually outweigh our benefit. It's just that we are the ones in the position to make the make the assessment and uh, make the decision. And uh, then, of course, you would, uh, in a lot of cases, end up with uh, uh, some inefficiency, like uh, taking some choices that, in the global scale, might not uh, might not make sense. But uh, d did the court find any um, reason to say that we, of course, they can't establish such a system. They're not. Uh, they're not. Uh, meant to to establish like the formula of taking into account but did they say that we should have such a system or could they have said that uh, well uh, that i i think that was uh, that was part of what the majority and the minority disagreed about i think that uh, the majority essentially said what i said uh, if you sort of strip away all uh, the legal uh, legal argumentation and sort of cut down to what uh, was the core of uh, of the argument was that um, uh, making or doing this sort of balancing as part of an impact assessment at the opening stage would be a rather pointless exercise because you don't know <coughs> what um, the effects of increased production uh, will be. You don't know whether there will be any increased production. You don't know whether there will be any petroleum that can be produced, etc. Uh, so you would have to make very sort of sketchy estimates. And what you could say something about is, of course, that increased production uh, will have some effects on the market, etc. But, but uh, I think as I read the majority, they say that this is something that it is possible to have a political discussion about. And they also also pointed to the process in the parliament where this was actually discussed. Uh, there was um, much discussion around uh, this question uh, in in the opening decision in 2013, and and I said that that was that is the proper place for that consideration because in in the form of an impact assessment you can't really say anything. That that was what I argued, and then you had the minority which had a slightly different view. They also said, um, as I read them, that there's a risk that this may be close to a pointless exercise. But at the same time, they said that it is possible to make some assessments. And they argued then that these assessments, because of the importance and sort of along the lines that you argue, uh, could have been made part of the impact assessment. Um, and um, therefore, in view of the importance of the question, etc and also as far as i read them in view of sort of serving to remind people of the importance of these questions it it, it that in itself would sort of have a value to put into an impact assessment and in the impact assessment we do we do account for the increase in emissions that will occur from combustion in norway uh, but uh, can you explain why we why we care about the Norwegian combustion from the oil uh, and uh, not the uh, not the uh, combustion in other countries from the same uh, same oil field? 
I, I think people uh, probably can have different opinions on that. I think the easy answer is that this is how this has been interpreted before. But uh, also, I think there is an understanding here that um, this is how the international system for combating climate change uh, has uh, uh, sort of provided for, that this is how it shall be done. So um, I, I think, as far as I had, have understood it, the, um, <coughs> the international law in this area is based on precisely the distinction between burning in other countries and the produ production in your own country. Uh, and the basic uh, argument or the, the basic understanding is that what uh, countries have a responsibility for is the consumption in their own country, not their exports uh, to other countries. And that is kind of, as you said, um, the standard established by the Paris Agreement uh, that you're, you're looking at the combustion within each country. And uh, in a way that makes uh, makes Norway look uh, very green. We have a lot of uh, renewable electricity and a lot of electric cars. Uh, but then on the other hand, we are a big exporter of like fossil fossil fuels. But in a climate um, accounting exercise right now, we look like a very green country, uh, which I think uh, some of the environmental organizations thinks it's uh, almost hypocritical uh, in a way. Um, but um, uh, you you uh, said in the same article we referenced earlier that um, uh, you had an example of um, littering uh, as a parallel to the climate problem. Can you go into that as well? Yes, yeah, so I, I well the way I perceive the climate uh, climate problem is um, you can make the analogy to throwing litter on the street or or basically to throw litter around. Um, if uh, if you look at it from uh, one person's individual perspective, uh, there's no there there won't be sort of any added much added harm done if everyone else throws litter around if you also do it um, uh, and and you could say that this is uh, in a sense the same that you have in uh, in the petroleum uh, in the discussion relating to production of petroleum you could say that if uh, norway stops producing petroleum or uh, stops exploring for petroleum, that won't have any effect on the global climate if all other producing countries continues. Um, but that, of course, isn't necessarily morally an excuse for continuing to explore for petroleum and continuing to produce petroleum, because if everyone thinks like that, um no solution to the to the question will ever be found um so uh, so yeah that's that's the analogy that that is a problem of course so i, I will ask you perhaps a tricky question could you try and translate the um, the environmental paragraph to that example what would uh, what would an environmental paragraph look like in the parallel of a world where it's uh, where there is excessive littering 
Yes, well, I I think that um, that that is a good question because the question is what sort of commitment does section 112 in the constitution lay on the government government uh, what is important here and what uh, at least from uh, from the interpre interpretation that uh, the supreme the supreme court does um, is that this uh, this places some commitment on the government that is also subject to judicial review uh, but uh, the problem also is, of course, that what the level of uh, Norwegian uh, sort of activities to stop littering, if you take that analogy, or to stop producing petroleum, what the level, what level of activities should the government engage in? It's that's not necessarily something that is properly a legal question. It is something that it is possible to have different political opinions about. Uh, and the Norwegian system is based on the premise that those decisions, that sort of decision, should be made subject to the democratic process in the parliament. Uh, and, and that is, of course, also why uh, the court is so hesitant to go in and review the government policy in this case, because the government policy here is something that has been subject to a very, uh, uh, very detailed uh, democratic process. Uh, there has been different political opinions, and then the, then the majority of the parliament has reached a decision. Uh, and then people, uh, people might legitimately mean that Norway should do more. Obviously, uh, that is a legitimate political opinion. But it is not something that you can say follow from the constitution by way of law. Because what you do then is that, that uh, you allow the constitution to become a political tool. And that is very dangerous. Because then you lose the legitimacy of the constitution then you say that the 10, 15, 20% uh, of the people or uh, the parliament, which actually meant that we shouldn't open those areas, we shouldn't hand out new licenses, um, they are sort of, uh, they, uh, if you sort of clothe those, are their, their arguments in legal terms, what you basically say is that, that then you have to have very strong legal grounds to do that. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not possible, but there's, there's a legitimacy question here because it's, it's very important that, that um, uh, the constitution as uh, a legal tool is there to safeguard essential legal interests. But when we talk about the... Um allocation of decision-making power in the climate and environmental policy between the political authorities and the courts. Maybe we should comment about some critics which say that the courts are not well equipped or don't or lack specific knowledge to decide on this matter. And it's therefore better suited for the political authorities to, to give decisions in this regard. Yes, I think that's 
it's sort of another way of saying what uh, what I just uh, said, I think. I think that the point is that in order for the courts uh, to be able to sort of judicially review government acts and, and set aside majority opinions uh, and majority decisions of the parliament, um, then there have to be very strong legal grounds uh, for the courts to do that. Uh, and, and it is possible that there are some interests which, uh, which are suitable for that kind of judicial review, Ty typically individual interests. If you have uh, if to, if you have a conflict between majority interest and individual interests, um, it, there might be good reasons for the court to intervene and to protect those individual interests. Um, but if you have decisions relating to um, circumstances where it is possible to have different political opinions, where it is possible to have different factual understandings of the implications of uh, the political decisions being taken, which I think uh, the climate issue is a good example of. Um, pe people might leg legitimately disagree on whether producing petroleum in Norway is a good idea or not in view of what is in the best interest of the global uh, global climate. One, one possible perspective might of course be that uh, Norwegian gas is not part of the problem, it's part of the solution because you can phase out coal by producing gas, for instance. Uh, and I, I, I think that the problem here is that these questions are very difficult uh, and it's possible to have different opinions on them. Uh, and I think, uh, and I, I don't necessarily have a strong personal opinion myself, but I think what is important here is that the courts are not the place to make those decisions because the courts, uh, the courts uh, are uh, uh, manned by lawyers. Uh, and these, these questions are not necessarily mostly legal questions. They're factual questions or science questions, etc. And you're touching uh, on their, um, what kind of uh, rights and uh, standing that uh, one, Section 112 gives uh, to individuals or groups. And we'll touch on that uh, in, a, in a short while. Uh, before we move on from this, I would just like to hear your thoughts on an uh, example we uh, we uh, thought up uh, earlier. Just uh, sort of another parallel and a, a bit more of a funny, uh, funny uh, legal hypothetical, um, inspired by some of the environmental activist groups calling uh, our um, uh, reliance on oil and addiction. Um, and um, I was wondering if uh, we had an international agreement stating that there was a problem with drug use uh, in the world, and um, uh, we uh, we had an, uh, a paragraph of the constitution saying that uh, our country should work to um, make a world with uh, less uh, less drug use or um, a, a more um, more healthy. Um, 
uh, environment, uh, sort of say, in the, in the area of drugs. Um, c- uh, would it then uh, be in accordance with that law that we were selling drugs, but we could say that we are not using them ourselves? I'm not sure I think that <laughs> that uh, example is a very good analogy. But um, I think in order to make it a good analogy, I think you would uh, sort of have to complicate the example much more. You would have, for instance, Please to do. say you could, uh, you could then sort of play a little with the example and uh, say that there are different types of drug use, for instance. Uh, and uh, you would you could make the example sort of a bit more complicated by saying that the implications of Norwegian selling of drugs on global drug use aren't sort of straightforward. Perhaps you let's say that you you had um, a number of scientists arguing that Norwegian drugs are better. Uh, for drug users than uh, drugs produced by other countries, that uh, Norwegian drugs are safer, uh, that in order to combat drug use, you would have to sort of, you can't stop sort of from one day to another. You have to sort of to, to give the users milder drugs, etc. So I, I think that in order for, to that, for, for that example to sort of be appropriate, you would you would have to sort of make uh, such changes. No, I, th- I think you made it very appropriate to um, as to the discussion of, for instance, facing out uh, coal power with uh, with gas, which is of course uh, an argument that uh, I think makes it hard for the court to take this uh, decision, as uh, as you said, because uh, there are still um, experts in the field uh, claiming it could be a net positive, uh, which again. Uh, highlights some of the um, some of the limitations uh, of using the legal system as climate activism, because you have to rely on uh, on um, the, the law as written, of course, and also what kind of decisions the court is uh, is um, uh, suitable su- suited to make. Yes, yeah. thank you. Uh, as Conrad said, I think we can now jump to the section 112. Um, The Supreme Court says that it gives rights to the individuals. Can you can you clarify for us what could that mean in practice? I'm not sure that the Supreme Court actually says that section 112 gives rights to individuals because then you sort of enter into a distinction of collective rights versus individual rights. I think uh, what the Supreme Court essentially says is that Section 112 provides for rights that can be tried by the courts. They don't say really whose rights it provides. It just says that it provides for rights which can be tried by the courts. Uh, to limited extent. So uh, we can say that it's more collective interest that it's protected? Well, that would be my interpretation at least. I think I think that uh, 
at least in view of this case, I think that the right to a healthy climate is uh, evidently a, a collective right that uh, all citizens of Norway and all, all basically all citizens of the world uh, are assumed to have. Um, um, so what the Supreme, uh, the Supreme Court, uh, the, the implications of what the Supreme Court says here is that section 112 provides for a right for Norwegian citizens to a healthy climate uh, to a certain extent or to a healthy environment to a certain extent uh, that can also to a certain extent be tried by the courts. So from my understanding, they they might have used the wording individual rights, but without much deliberation on what that would mean as compared to collective rights. Uh, do, do you have an opinion on that matter or could explain to us uh, sort of the difference? I, I think uh, the basic difference between an individual right and a collective right um, has to do with the possibility of individualizing the interest uh, that the right protects. So I think in order for at least uh, the way I see it, in order for something meaningful, meaningfully to be spoken of as an individual right, you would have also to say that it is the right of an individual who has a distinct interest that is sort of different from the interests of other people. Uh, so an individual interest would, for instance, be my interest in not being uh, put in jail without uh, a proper, uh, proper uh, court case. Uh, it would be my interest in not having my property taken without compensation, etc. Uh, whereas I could also be part of collective rights as a group. Uh, and I think uh, the right to a healthy environment at this level that we're speaking about here is typically a collective right. Because you, uh, as you say, have an individual right, you, you would say, to, to not be jailed for no reason, for instance. And the way, you, the way that right is established, it, it can't really be taken away from a majority of parliament for instance uh, we we vote that we want to put Ivar in jail uh, because that's the majority opinion uh, but uh, but uh, if the climate right to a healthy climate is more of an individual right that more of a collective right sorry that would make it easier to be overruled by a majority of parliament is that uh, fair to say not necessarily because i think um... Uh, I, I think that is a different issue, but I think in the nature of things, uh, collective rights uh, are often more difficult to make, make into the subject of judicial review. That is correct, but I, 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 it's not necessarily the case, but I, I think often it is the case. Yeah, because the argument would be that if the majority representing a majority of the country makes a decision, they, they are kind of um, setting aside their collective right for their collective interest. But if uh, everyone had an individual right, you could not take that away from them, even if a majority of the country would, would want to. Yeah, perhaps. Or you could also say that um, collective rights are 
in the nature of being vaguer than individual rights because they are sort of less concrete, the interests are less concrete. Uh, it is sort of very, it is quite easy to identify my interest in my property, for instance, um, and the conflict of interests that there may be between that my interest and the majority or collective interest in, in building a road over the property, for instance. Uh, that is sort of, it's a quite, it's easy to sort of identify the interests, but um, um, but the collective interests as such are some something that, um, yeah, I think you said it quite well that it, that it is something that is subject typically to political argument, uh, how best to serve those collective interests. And that is something that is usually best served by uh, by majority deliberation in the parliament or democratic processes. So, so, so what we've learned from this court case is uh, pretty much that section 112 is more like a safety valve for for gross environmental negligence, I think uh, was the standard that the Supreme Court uh, established. Uh, so, in in light of that, do you think that we've had any environmental gain from trying uh, this uh, this paragraph in a climate lawsuit? Uh, that's a good question. Um, do you think it will be used again, or was this a, a, a try and now we've established it will probably not be helpful to use this paragraph in future lawsuits? Well, I, I think it, there, there is a legal gain to sort of because the Supreme Court has clarified the meaning of Section 112. And there is also an environmental gain in that the, the Supreme Court uh, says that the environment is an interest, a global or a collective interest that potentially is subject to judicial review. Uh, but then again, uh, it is correct, as you say, that what the Supreme Court, uh, and here there's a uh, unanimous decision of the Supreme Court, uh, they essentially say that it is a safety valve. They actually use that word also. So uh, so they, uh, they say that it is a safety valve and that uh, there is a very high threshold for, um, uh, for the courts setting aside uh, democratically uh, made decisions. So could you maybe imagine some case which would be better to try this climate paragraph? That is very difficult for me to, uh, uh, to speculate on. Um, um, I, I don't, I, I think that <clears throat> I think that um, I, I'm 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 not sure that this was a good case to try section 112. Um, if one hoped for a very sort of offensive uh, or very sort of forward-leaning uh, environmental stance from the Supreme Court. Uh, but uh, then again, I, I think uh, that there is an important clarification here, which does also have some environmental value. But personally, I think that the main value of Section 112, uh, the main practical value of 112, 
probably isn't that this it will in itself provide a likely basis for uh, setting aside uh, parliamentary acts, etc., but that it provides an important uh, argument for interpreting uh, uh, other statutory provisions. Uh, and it provides um, also potential basis for setting aside uh, administrative decisions, uh, uh, perhaps in combination with interpretation of statutory provisions, etc. etc. So there, there, that is where I personally would perceive that uh, the main value of section 112 is. Thank you. Uh, so, so lastly, I just uh, want to want to ask you if you could perhaps clarify a little bit what it means to have uh, gross negligence or disregard for the environment. Uh, as they said, that that would be like the standard for when the court could overrule uh, some uh, sort of government policy. Do they actually use the word uh, the term gross negligence? Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think they did. Okay, yeah, I, I don't uh, recall that. But if, but they, they might, uh, and I agree that that is a possible. Uh, that would be a possible formulation or expression of the likely threshold. Um, gross negligence is a very high threshold. It means that ordinary negligence is not sufficient. Um, could, uh, it could, for instance, mean that uh, someone uh, makes a decision to do something, um, uh, being conscious about this involving a high risk to the environment, for instance. That that might be uh, gross negligence. Or if um, if you take gross negligence in uh, in other circumstances, um, if you do something knowing that doing it endangers someone. That um, that sort of element of knowing, uh, not knowing that there will be harm, but knowing that there is a risk of harm, that might in itself be uh, gross negligence. But but this language establishes like a, a high burden of uh, of proof and a high. Uh, a high standard for actually overturning government policy uh, with this Def paragraph. Definitely. Yeah. But I don't think that that is necessarily the standard for other kinds of government decisions than, uh, than uh, parliamentary decisions. So I think uh, this has to be read um, uh, on the background that what the court discusses here is the threshold for overturning parliamentary decisions. I, I sort of the, the underlying value here is, of course, democracy. I just wanted to add that I checked now and they used gross negligence and safety valve both. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I think we've now touched on everything we wanted to talk to you about. It's been very interesting and uh, fruitful discussion, I, uh, I hope. Um, so uh, thank you again for taking uh, so much time. It's uh, been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you as well. Thank you. Thank you. So this wraps up our interview with Ivar Alvik. Uh, Konrad, what do you think? 
Well, I think that we learned uh, some um, more about the permit process, which uh, I still think is uh, kind of complicated, but uh, combined with uh, our interview with Professor Voigt, I think uh, I think we now know a bit more about how it works. And uh, with the, the these two different legal professors, I think it's also interesting to point out the, the difference uh, that uh, Ivar talked about uh, that if the Supreme Court had uh, um, sided with the plaintiffs in uh, some of these specific uh, points here that uh, they would have made the Constitution more of a political tool um, and uh, Christina seemed to think that the decision of the court to um, not do anything was actually uh, making a political decision by trying to avoid to make a political decision. So I think that it's very interesting. What were your uh, uh, thoughts after it? Uh, I think that professor's view about balancing the global climate implications against the benefits of Norway from increasing Norwegian production uh, are interesting because professors said that that would be close to a pointless exercise because benefit will be very tangible, while on the other hand, global implications will be quite limited because they will only form part of all the accumulated effect of oil global emissions in the world. And I think that really just goes to the heart of one of the major problems with climate change, of course. So it's... Uh... It's interesting to hear several sides of those uh, of those viewpoints, I think. And uh, uh, just in the end, I think it was a fruitful conversation uh, and, uh, that, we, that we learned a lot from. But, uh, but uh, uh, luckily, our other interviews with, um, among others, some uh, economists that did a review of the impact assessment before op opening this field, we can have a closer look at uh, what tangible benefits there actually were to Norway in this case and how you could compare that to uh, to damages uh, in other countries. So thank you for listening to this episode and we'll see you in the next one. <laughs> <laughs>